0: On this stellar episode of Starpod Trek, we consider the contents of Starlog magazine from 1982 in issues 57 and 58.
1: Bob Turner and Kelly Casto relate how trekkers are doers, not just dreamers.
0: Bert Bruce comments on the rumors about Spock dying in The Wrath of Khan.
1: Plus, on the good ship Enterprise by B. Joe Trimble.
0: Star Trek video game by Vectrex.
1: Our viewing of Space Seed.
0: The Trek novels that were released in 1982.
1: And more on this episode of...
0: Star Pod Trek.
1: <music> Greetings and felicitations.
0: Hip hip hoorah, tally ho.
1: Hey my baby doll.
0: Hey puddin'. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora.
1: If this is your first time listening to us, welcome.
0: We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication.
1: On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago.
0: But we leave the non-Trek related content to our other podcast, Log.
1: Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine
0: If you would like to comment on the subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode.
1: Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews.
0: Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We are on tour. Look for us at the following upcoming conventions.
1: Lexington Comic and Toy Convention, March 23rd through 26th. Boy, this is going to be a good one. We love going there. Middle of Kentucky, lots of fandom there, but especially for Star Trek fans, we're looking forward to seeing
0: Anson Mount
1: and Gavin Smith. We know Anson Mount is Captain Pike on Strange New World. Gavin Smith, incredible Star Trek comic book artist.
0: Yeah, we went to this con once. Um, it was huge and a lot of fun. I, kn- I know it was pretty crowded when we went before, and they have a lot of guests uh, besides the Star Trek people. It's like it's a pretty good sized con.
1: Yeah, if you haven't been there before, definitely look forward to meeting you there, Chattanooga, Tennessee,
0: May twelfth through fourteenth.
1: This year, it's going to be 90s theme. Every time they have it, they rotate the themes. The 1990s special guest star, Jonathan Frakes. We know that Star Trek was huge in the 90s. I think this is going to be awesome. We love MetrothamCon.
0: Yeah, it was a fun con. And seeing Jonathan Frakes will make it even better.
1: Lots of comics there, toys. I mean, it's just a, a multimedia con, but this type of focus is perfect for Star Trek fans. We look forward to seeing our listeners there. And we've already gotten our invitation to return, as always, to Dragon Con. Sure. Labor Day weekend, Atlanta, Georgia. The Trek Track always is on fire, and we're ready to contribute to it even more this year.
0: Dragon Con is always fun, and the Trek Track is just amazing. There, there's so much going on. Uh, And also, we're going to be in the Star Trek section of the parade again.
1: So if you're thinking about marching in the parade, Kavor is organizing that section. So, send us a PM. Starlog Magazine. Issue number 57. Cover date, April 1982. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. This is a rather lengthy letter but it's pretty amazing, from Dwayne Cornelia from New York, New York, entitled Trek Alternative.
0: Recently in your log entries department, a debate has arisen concerning the possible death of Mr. Spock in the Star Trek movie sequel. In Starlog No. 54, the readers and Paramount Pictures had their respective problems aired. The readers and fans of Mr. Spock do not want to see him die, as Paramount plans. Paramount, in return, cannot afford to lose the projected $28 million if the Trek fans do not view or care to view the movie sequel. I believe I have a plausible solution. The following is an open letter to Paramount containing my solution.
1: All right, so let's just comment on that portion of it. He has the idea that because of the rumor mail spreading so early that Mr. Spock is going to die and. We've been discussing this now on numerous episodes. People just keep writing into Starlog, inquiring about it, having letter petitions to stop it. He is now proposing that Star Trek fans are going to boycott this movie because of this. What do you think about that facet of this letter?
0: No, as I was reading that, I was thinking, no, I think the fans are still going (laughs) to see it. (laughs) Even though it might not make as much money because maybe the fans won't see it, you know, over and over like they do some of the other movies.
1: Okay, so that's his idea, and and we know, look at modern-day Trek. Trek fans are loyal. Sometimes we just watch train wrecks just for the sake of it's Trek.
0: A lot of people see the movie at least once just to see what it's like. Of course.
1: All right, so he goes on to say now, this is the letter that he wants to go to the studio. Why not have Mr. Spock, a superior philosophical being, evolve into a higher plane of existence rather than die? During this evolution, he can cast off his body like so much a snake skin and grow spiritually. His soul remains what will occupy another dimension, on the other side of the open door called death. His conscience intellect can be mind-melded with another Vulcan before the spirit leaves the body. Mr. Spock and his potential co-being must find each other, other compatible by vibrating their energy fields in complete harmony. Only then can the combining take place. With the combination complete, we have a new being, a new character. Yes, this intelligence is both Spock and co-being, but now they reside and function as one. And it goes on and on with saying how this would be uh, better going forward. And he states a reference to other, another Star Trek book, Strangers Among Us how there's information, how this is possible in this plane. Uh, what do you think about his solution?
0: Well, well yeah, it's interesting because that's that's practically <laughs> what they did. So, it, <laughs> yeah, like did Paramount take his idea? He could sue them for it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he closes by saying, as sentient beings, let us continue to love Leonard Nimoy and urge him towards his own infinite diversity. I love the comments. By Starlog magazine. So obviously the heirs of Starlog magazine at this point have some idea what's going on in the world of Star Trek 2.
0: Okay, so Starlog's response, in addition to the responses you mentioned, Dwayne, Leonard Nimoy and editor Howard Zimmerman had their own say in Starlog number 56. Also in a recent interview, Nimoy stated that true sci-fi heroes never really die and he used Obi-Wan Kenobi as an example. The film's solution may be closer to your suggestion than you could have hoped for. In any event, an upcoming issue will be telling you and the rest of sci-fi fandom exactly how Paramount addressed the situation.
1: Wow! What do you think about that?
0: Yes, yeah, so Paramount actually knew what... Was, or Starlog knew what was going to happen before they had printed it.
1: And this guy... He's a thinker. He's looking for different possibilities.
0: Yeah, he wanted a way for Spock to not die, which, I mean, I mean, the studio had, it really did, w- they were going to kill Spock at first, but then they kind of changed their minds at the end, as Leonard Nimoy changed his mind. And the idea of having him be like Obi-Wan Kenobi, that is something, um, that is an interesting thought that, um, that Obi-Wan was able to come back and Spock was able to come back.
1: Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Well, we just went over that amazing letter by Dwayne Cornelia talking about Spock dying. Know this short blurb, this log entry.
0: Following the wrap of Star Trek two, Leonard Nimoy told Variety, I'm looking forward to talking about doing Star Trek three. That should answer questions about the survival of Mr. Spock. Besides, nobody dies in science fiction. Look at Alec Guinness. The film scheduled for a June release was extremely pleasant to work in. has some very powerful material and character relationships, Nimoy added.
1: But he's obviously showing some insight that he has some intel of what's going forward with Star Trek III. Curious, huh?
0: Yeah, because I think they, they do give him a say in it.
1: Columbia. The second mission.
0: On november twelfth, the Columbia Space Shuttle lifted off again, marking the first time a spacecraft had been reused. Piloted by astronauts Joe Ingle and Richard Truly, the Columbia carried a space applications payload and a remote manipulator arm. It landed at Edwards Air Force Base in California, runway twenty
1: three. Amazing. First time ever reusable space shuttles that's the whole point of this program the article goes on to say within two weeks after landing work began on reading the columbia for its third flight test scheduled for march 1982 this was the era of the space shuttle i mean it was exciting because there was so much going on in rapid succession and they were broadcasting this information on tv all the time i remember in my school they're actually stopping the school so we could watch the these type of things.
0: Oh, your school was nice to do that,
1: huh. They brought in once they rolled in that TV, oh, we know it was going to be exciting.
0: I remember watching sh- some of the space shuttle launches from home, and um, yeah it was exciting. and so they they continued that space shuttle program and the way it, the way it kept going, the way it was just one after another that that was awesome too.
2: The great bird of the
3: galaxy, Gene Ronberry, once said.
1: Star Trek is an attempt to say that humanity will reach maturity and wisdom on the day that it begins not just to tolerate, but take a special delight in differences in ideas and differences in life forms.
4: Star Pod Trek.
3: Celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future.
1: Directory to Star Trek Fan Clubs. Alright, in this section, we're going to go over some fan clubs that are listed. I think it's so unique that before the internet, this is how fans got together, either through correspondence or meeting in people's homes. So let's talk about some of these options. Starbase Denver meets first Friday of each month at St. Thomas Episcopal Church for fans of Star Trek and other science fiction TV films. Run StarCon each year. The
0: Filk Foundation Publishes can tell and is devoted to filk singing, songs rewritten or created for science fiction fandom.
1: I know that a network like that would produce lyrics to songs, so people could apply it to their own filking at conventions.
0: Filking was a big thing at cons, and it it was a lot of fun. I mean, just singing songs with this Star Trek theme, and a lot of them had the, you know, the um, tunes that you recognize. They actually started writing them and making their own tunes.
1: Denver Astronomical Society meets at the Chamberlain Observatory at Evans and Milwaukee on the seventh, fourth Fridays of the month, and gather for speaker presentation, telescope viewing, and socializing. Now that's something that we've recently joined, is the Nashville Astronomical Society, and it's very similar.
0: Yeah, it's something that uh, that is sponsored by NASA, so maybe they were st- they were doing those back then as well.
1: The Atlanta Star Trek Society. Contact Ron Naistrom.
0: That's it. That's the Dixie Trek one.
1: So this is the guy that started Dixie Trek?
0: Yeah, and he, he used to run a track at Dragon Con.
1: Various meeting, location, times, dues are $5 a year, and include the club letter, lingua code, a showcase-type fanzine. Atlanta Star Trek Realist Association. Contact Randall Landers. Friend of the show.
0: (laughs) Yeah, our friend Randy. Yeah, we know he, he lived in Atlanta and he was active in fandom. Yeah,
1: Meets in members' homes. No dues. Publishes irregular newsletter. Meetings feature serious discussions of Star Trek. Let me tell you, if you want to watch some awesome Star Trek fan films, look up Potemkin Pictures on YouTube. This guy is a hardcore Star Trek fan. Isn't it awesome to see his name listed? An- Atlanta just has so much fandom in it,
0: and and of course you, you can find it now. But now it's like like the uh, it's on Facebook or something like Reddit. They have discussions. It's not the same. There, there. Yeah, I mean there are still fan groups that meet up in person, but somehow like you, you still don't see it as much. Especially after COVID, you you don't see people meeting in person as much.
1: Yeah, people just got used to doing things online. But, I mean, this is like to me this is the real fandom going and breaking bread with people physically socializing i mean just doing community yeah. efforts
0: well it's interesting that they met in people's homes too i mean i mean yeah we we do that but a lot of people like to meet in in restaurants now and something like that yeah, so yeah yeah so it seems like back then they had more people going to people's homes
1: all right this was a club that i was part of I never went to meetings, but I would get the newsletters. It was the Boston Star Trek Association. Dues are seven fifty annually, founded in 1973. The club has 95 members. Its activities include newsletter publishing and hosting convention once a year. I still have my BSTA membership button.
0: Oh that's neat. So it's a club that also has a con every year.
1: Mm-hmm. And my parents were going to bring me to Boston. You know, when the Star Trek conventions came to New Haven, I would do that, but... I think it's, for the club, this was the era of creation conventions in the world of Star Trek. So for the club to make their own convention, which we have some of the programs, they're really nice programs, they have great lineups there, Uh, I think that's impressive on its own, that that a club was that powerful and had that much, uh, the people were involved that much, the the members of the club, to be able to put on their own convention.
0: It's amazing that some of these people, like, Started cons or started their own fan clubs like back in the 70s and 80s, and they're still like some of these people are still active in fandom now, still putting on cons, and and we've met some of these people. Um, and, and you know, not everyone stays in fandom I, because I've met people who who tapered off of going to cons. They sort of like started doing their own thing, having having families or whatever, and, and stopped doing normal cons. life, right? Well, what you would, well we're trying to call it mundane life, mundane right? life, yeah, yeah, the mundanes. Um, I mean, some people, you know, have families and still stay active in, in the geek world, but some don't. So so it's just amazing these people who, who do stay in it all these time, who keep the interest up and still stay active in it.
1: I think what impresses me about looking at any entries that has, science, uh, that has Star Trek in it, oftentimes the Star Trek people are still really into Trek.
0: They are. E- even if they're into Legacy Trek, they might not be into New Trek, but... But a lot of them are, you know, still follow the shows.
1: How about this one? Star Trek Winnipeg. Contact Mike Daly. Care of the Manitoba Planetarium. Membership is $5 per year. So I'm going to assume that this Trek club does things with regards to the astronomical club that's in the area. Or something associated with real world space exploration.
0: And Star Trek fans usually like space exploration too. Or... NASA, following the, the space shuttle or anything that NASA does. I mean, Star Trek fans are usually into space and astronomy.
1: I'm, 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 I don't want to say I'm amazed because I'm a nerd. I knew these things were going on. But it just reinforces how important Starlog was to genre culture. Because it wasn't just reporting on celebrities. It wasn't just giving us news. It was actually connecting people. And... That's what makes Star Trek come alive even more so.
2: Hi, this is Randy Landers from Potemkin Pictures. Look for us on YouTube at Potemkin1711 to watch our Star Trek fan productions.
4: Hi there, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto.
3: Uh, we are from the podcast 70s trek and also the unofficial trek podcast today we're here talking about the april 1982 star log magazine and we're going to talk about an article by david gerald but before we get there kelly i was
4: looking at the cover what the hell's going on on the cover of this (laughs) man it's like a Guy riding a big iguana or something. That's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> but there's no explanation
3: for what I'm looking at. Crazy. It is a little different. Yeah, there's a guy riding an iguana. Yeah, that's yeah. Pretty, that's pretty much it. Um, I'm I'm assuming because the uh, there's a little headline that says uh, sci-fi designer Ron Cobb from Dark Star to Conan. So I'm assuming it's about Ron Cobb.
4: Yes, I'm assuming this well.
3: Um there is a uh, then down below report from Paris. Chesley Bonestell. Now that got my attention because of course Chesley Bonestell he is the famous illustrator who who did very early on in the 30s 40s these incredible pictures of what space might look like. Yes. Before we ever had the opportunity to know what it looked like. So, yeah, he's a pretty cool guy. He is. So, Kelly, let's talk about this David Gerald
4: <laughs> article called Making a Difference. Okay. Let's talk about this. It's very hard to read. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's go on record first as
3: saying David Gerald, right, the guy who wrote The Trouble with Tribbles. Yes. And later on, um, the episode that appeared in the animated series too, More Tribbles, More Troubles, I think it was or is that right? Did I remember that right? Yeah, it you're... Yeah, probably not. Let's just assume I did not remember okay. it correctly. It's the one with the tribbles in the in the cartoon show. Yes. Um so we like David Gerald, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. His yeah. stories are fantastic. Absolutely. So we're not here to to, to well, I guess we are a little bit. We're not here to beat the guy up too much, but maybe a little bit over this article. I think we're on the same page when it comes to this. Yeah. So, Gerald starts off by reprinting a section from a fanzine that that some fan wrote about how Trek fans are basically a, a active people, right? They're caring people who get involved with things and and they're they're active people, they're
4: doers. Right. And and I think the um, fan or the fanzine, scene, um, the art, the the letter from the fan, I should say, um, is giving Gerald crap because <laughs> he is basically saying trekkers are dreamers, not doers.
3: Yeah, because he had. You're right. Because he has the basically a soapbox in Starlog magazine where he gets to write right. anything he wants to about fans sci-fi yes.
4: whatever yes i can imagine that that um any kind of media these days with their little disclaimer the views of so-and-so or not the views of the <laughs> station all became apparent from davidshire i i felt like
3: this was very early Social media, without it being social media. Yes, yes. I mean, today, right, in social media, uh, you've got people who speak up and give their opinions about things that they have no business giving their opinions on. And I, you know, you you could have Sade giving an opinion on the Buffalo Bills. The right. two don't connect. They don't matter. But, ooh, hey, there's an opinion. We got to go, go look yes. at this. And I liked how you dug for Sade. I did. I did, actually. <laughs> I did. And so what you've got here basically is Gerald Gerald weighing in on a fan in a fanzine that didn't really get widely published because it's a fanzine. So that in and of itself means that Gerald was looking for ideas to write about in Starlog magazine. <laughs> yes.
4: Yes. <laughs> yes. And he likes to pont- pontificate.
3: Oh, very nice. Yes, he does. And I'll say he agrees with her points that fans possess amazing skills and talents and that they're out there doing positive things. And, and this fact is what led Gerald to create his call to action columns in Starlog, calling fans to do more. Right. But he makes the point that while fans are doers, what they're doing might not be enough.
4: Yeah. And could they be doing more? On more important issues. Right. Except, you know, you know, don't, don't just send a letter to, for another season of Star Trek, but send a letter to, to, you know, whoever about the space program and how important it is.
3: Yeah. It, it, it's a little like when you're in junior high and you thought you did something good, but your uncle comes over. With his beer and he's got beer breath and he puts his arm around <laughs> your shoulder and he's basically telling you, well, yeah, that's something, but it isn't all you could do. And then suddenly you don't feel so good about yourself. Yeah. He, he, he asks, or I should say he writes, if we have enough clout to make that big of a difference, and I think he's talking about the letter writing campaign, perhaps. Why are we wasting it on Paramount Pictures? Why not lay out a bigger game? Yeah
4: And he's just challenging these Star Trek fans to focus your powers of good to bigger issues, more important issues. Yes. And he did this for you know several paragraphs.
3: Um, we could go back and count, but I think it would be close to 15. maybe, <laughs> maybe 20. He writes at one point, science fiction fans are capable of asking a far bigger difference in the world, excuse me, making a far bigger difference in the world than we give ourselves credit for. The truth is that all of us are capable of far more impact than we are presently making. The only thing stopping us is ourselves, our own belief that we cannot make a difference. So... I I think he's at a time, right, in the 70s when movements are beginning to wake up, right? You've, you've had the free speech movement. You've had the equal rights movement. You've had, you know, women's lib movement. You've had these things coming out of the 60s and early 70s. I think he's basically saying, hey, if we all got together, we could do something that's, that's earth shattering. Yeah. Which is great. It is. I'm 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 good with that. You know, I'm all for people getting together and just saying we're going to love each other and we're not going to fight with each other. You know, that alone, if we all just said that, what a different world it would be. But he's urging us to call our congressman or our senator and (laughs) say we want the space program
4: to continue. Yeah, which we're all for, but he's really just berating this kind
3: fan. of, yeah. I know that's the impression I got to is Diane is the name of the fan who wrote in the fanzine and poor Diane. He, I, I get the feeling by the time this is over after these 15 or 20 paragraphs that he's lecturing her. Yes. Right. Yeah. And he's kind of literally literal, meaning, you know, literature pointing his finger and, and wagging his finger at her.
4: Yeah. Uh, in a sense. So. Well, it, and I do like how he ended it. Okay. Where he says, here's some suggestions on how you can make a difference. And I I wish he would have started with this and right? started on a more positive note than beating the crap out of Diane um, and then getting to these great points. So he he says, it, it, you know, here's how you can make a difference. Write a letter to someone you th- um, you think has not been appreciated enough. That's great. You're you know absolutely. I love that. Then treat every day like it's the last, and let everyone who's important to you know how much you care about them. Wonderful idea. Oh my gosh, it that's so such a good idea, and and you know life altering, and then perform a service to another human being. And expect nothing in return. Oh awesome idea. Again, this is great. Why didn't you lead with this? David, come on. Right?
3: Right? I think it, I, I agree with you. Changing how people think, that's, or at least how they perceive something. That's the power of a, of a meaningful writer. Yes. You know, to be able to say, hey, listen, you think you're making a difference by writing Paramount Pictures asking for more Star Trek. That's great. But what if you were just to help somebody? What if you were just to go buy groceries for the lady down the street? What if you were just to cut their grass or or trim their hedges? What if you were just to do whatever that might be? Yeah. The one-to-one connection is more powerful, I think, than 50 of us holding signs protesting something we don't like. Right. Because the boots on the ground, right where the rubber meets the road. Let me see if I can come up with another one of those.
0: <laughs>
3: now my mind no? went blank. Okay, that's if we all did that, the world's a different place. It is. Yeah. So anyway, so that's think, how you could
4: make a difference, David.
3: That's right, David. If you're listening, <laughs> hey, keep writing cool stuff. Stop lecturing the fans. Yes. And again, this was 30 years ago, so I'm guessing maybe he he probably already did.
4: Yeah, I think so.
1: <laughs> 1982. We did have some Star Trek novels released. Not as many as you would expect, though. The Prometheus Design.
0: The Abode of Life.
1: The Wrath of Khan. Also, two books geared towards teens.
0: Star Trek Two Biographies.
1: And Star Trek two short stories.
0: Oh, so yeah, it wasn't um as big a year for the books, and and I remember some of those novels, yeah, were were not really as good either. They were kind of they were kind of subpar.
1: Yeah, they were still in the early stages. The what we call the numbered books. Remember, the motion picture was considered the first numbered book, and so Star Trek publication started putting things like a numerical order, even though you didn't have to read them in order. They're all self-contained.
0: But having the Wrath of Khan was probably what they, what they wanted to push the most.
1: Also in nonfiction, a book came out called The Good Ship Enterprise. My 15 Years with Star Trek by B. Joe Trimble. What I love about this, it's her memoir going through her history with Star Trek. And there are two segments in here that talk about her, her connection with the Wrath of Khan. She does mention that even though she was on the set a lot during the 60s, because of her connections with fandom, she was allowed on the sets, she was not there for the filming of Space Seed. So she never did get to meet Ricardo Montalban. But notice what happened once Gene Roddenberry was no longer involved in Star Trek going forward after the motion picture. We know that she was one of the extras in the rec room scene. She was kind of pushed aside, not just kind of, she was. She was no longer the the source of information for this next project. But one day, she did receive a phone call, surprisingly.
0: It was from Harv Bennett.
1: Now, she was so shocked that Harve Bennett was calling her. I like the idea that, He said he has some troubles with the script. He needed help. He's looking for her Star Trek concordance, but he couldn't find it anywhere. So he wanted to know if she had a copy that he could buy from her.
0: She was surprised that he was looking to her for help.
1: I mean, it had to be amazing. She said she did have an extra copy. She only lived a mile away from the studio. So she was able to get into the studio and help him out. And he said... Here's the script. Keep it under wraps and tell me if it looks right, if there's anything off. At this point, I'm looking and and really thinking about how why early Trek was so awesome. And it was so awesome because those involved were humble enough to reach out to super fans to say, we don't have all the answers. We know how to make movies. We know how things should be done on a technical level to make things look clean and bright and refreshing and exciting for the mass audiences. But the minutiae, we need the hardcore fans to make sure everything flows perfectly.
0: So I mean yeah that that's that's wonderful. He he actually called her and asked her to to look over the script. I mean that that is so cool. Yeah, to to even think about doing that and to and and yeah like what you're saying, they they reached out to the the super fans back then. They're like, like we know Star Trek has a history. We, we want to make sure we make this movie and do it doesn't have any major flaws like that. And why aren't the, the writers of Star Trek doing that now? I mean, they do have some advisors who are fans, but somehow they're, they're still not getting it. They're, they're still not listening.
1: Not... The, the difference is they're asking, but they're not listening now.
0: Right. They're not really taking the advice. They're not really um, keeping the show up to, to what's been established.
1: She said she made some notations on the script. Things such as, Scotty wouldn't say this. Little things. She said it wasn't major things. It was just more about how a character would act and react.
0: And and those are things that the fans know about. So, yeah. That's important to us, yeah. of
1: course. How many times have we watched Discovery and said, this doesn't even make sense? Or Strange New Worlds? If B. Joe Trimble was given the script to Strange New Worlds, and said, we're going to redo the Gorn and make it like Alien. What do you think her notes in the margins would be?
0: I mean, she would have to say that the Gorn were, were not like that on the original series. They were only in one episode, and no one knew who they were on the original series. And Strange New Worlds is supposed to take place before that.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's the, that's what impressed me so much so about this era, is the fan involvement and the respect for the history of Star Trek. And history at this point is the TV series, the animated series... In, in one movie. That's it. I love that section. Also, she goes on to say what it was like for her to meet Ricardo Montaban on the set of The Wrath of Khan. Because of her involvement now as a fan advisor, she was able to meet Ricardo Montaban and watch some of the scenes. It's funny she relates that on the set he would... the, the Khan's women, as we call them now, right? Or Khan's children... He would pat the girls on the butts as he was going on the set.
0: (laughs) Oh. hmm.
1: She said she was talking to one of the women and she was lamenting how difficult it was for her to get roles because she was so tall. And we know that Linda Carter lamented the same thing. Linda Carter said it was hard for her to get dates in high school because she's six feet tall. And BJ was saying, wow, I'm so short. I always wanted to be tall. The, the moral of the story is everyone has challenges somewhere in life.
0: Yeah, everyone has their differences that makes them unique, yeah. So this book came out in 1982, and I, I was not aware of it back then.
1: Oh, I definitely was not. No, yeah, I didn't get this until much later on. It,
0: it probably wasn't um, published everywhere.
1: It's by Starblaze Editions, so it looks like something that is small press, obviously. You just tell by the look and the feel of the book. Amazing information not only on the Wrath of Khan, but Star Trek fandom in general. She did say that when Ricardo talked to her, he was so kind to her. He didn't just brush her off. He seems like that type of guy.
0: Yeah, he does. From from interviews I think that um I got the impression he was always a nice man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When Vulcan was filled with emotions and war, to pull them from extinction there arose but one man. Serok deplored, emotions are bad Suppress all your feelings and logic will stand Some Vulcans departed, for Romulus they charted No logic to guide them, they still did not fail Then they started brewing a blue mixture stewing That swept the whole quadrant, it's Romulan Ale Romulan Ale, boys, Romulan Ale No liquor in space like Romulan
1: We had a chance this past weekend to march in Huntsville, Alabama in the annual St. Patrick's Day Parade, along with fellow Star Trek fans in Starfleet International, yes, members of the Werner Von Braun. Baby doll, tell us about what it was like to march in the parade.
0: Well, first of all, um, it turned out to be a good day uh, for a parade. Beautiful day. Yeah, it was um, kind of windy and and, um, not too hot, not too cold. And uh, so it was a great day. And it, the parade went through. It looked like da- downtown. A lot of people turned out.
1: I mean, downtown Huntsville. I love Huntsville as a city. It is fun to visit there. It is a super geek city as well. They have great comic book stores, great board game stores, great video game stores. I mean, the it is an awesome place to go to a convention and to geek out. But the downtown area is pretty cool because it has that... That feeling of like lots of restaurants, lots of activity, multi-level. So you had people hanging off the balconies, waving at us, viewing at us, flying flags. Lots of different fandoms represented there as well. We were marching behind the Intergalactic Brewery, and they had people in Star Trek uniforms. They were they had a float that was a shuttle pod. They had Star Wars marchers there, but of course, the hardcore Trekkers that we are, we represented Star Trek.
0: Yeah, and uh, everybody was was um, decked out in, in green for St. Patrick's Day. We wore our Starfleet uniforms, but also had um, our shamrock pins and green necklaces. And so everybody in the group was, was wearing green along with their trek. It was pretty cool. And uh, people along the sides were waving at us and doing the Vulcan salute. A lot of people, you know, were Star Trek fans.
1: It's amazing that that has turned into the international sign for Trek fandom. When people see us in uniform, they love doing that.
0: Yeah, the Vulcan salute, the great uh, Trek symbol.
1: Afterwards, along with our friends Richard, Sean, and Laura, we went to Toy Box Bistro. This restaurant is excellent. Like we were saying, Huntsville is such a nerdy city. This is a restaurant that has casual food and it's a bar with with a lot of local beers there but i just love the feeling of being enveloped in all these toys and games while you're enjoying your meal
0: and the menu had items like c3po which was a sandwich We, we just had a lot of fun there they had a lot of decorations like models uh from different tv shows and all the the tables had cards like, like different uh, fandom trading cards for different things. And they had gaming cards like Magic the Gathering.
1: Yeah, so each table that you sit at, even the table is thematic. You know what impressed me the most is the service there. Like our server was super friendly. And even though they didn't have any plant-based entrees on the menu, they went ahead and, and made something special. So it's a legitimate scratch kitchen. You don't find that at, at some places. It's either snooze you lose, too bad. But this place really went above and beyond to make everyone feel awesome.
0: Yeah, it was great service, and so everybody uh, enjoyed our time there.
1: Toy Box Bistro in Huntsville, Alabama. Highly recommend it, and we had an awesome St. Paddy's weekend. <laughs>
2: my Atari? My Intellivision? How about for this? You bet your asteroids. Introducing the revolutionary Vectrex arcade system. No TV set needed. Instead, Vectrex has a real arcade screen built in. So you get challenging real arcade graphics and sounds with every Vectrex cartridge. No wonder Vectrex was chosen two-to-one over Atari and Intellivision for real arcade gameplay. So compare. Discover how Vectrex brings real arcade play home.
1: Starlog Magazine, issue number 58, cover date, May, 1982. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. Trek, newcomers. This letter is written by Stephen Stafford of Waverly, Ohio.
0: If all of the announced pieces of the new Star Trek movie are in the finished product, the movie will not be a slow mover. I hope the regular supporting crew are not slighted again as they were in the first film i am beginning to think that the untapped potential of these actors and characters will forever go unrecognized a great loss to the world of star trek
1: one new character lieutenant savick has me somewhat puzzled the possibility of a romulan vulcan hybrid would appear to be rather remote since the federation was completely unaware of the physical appearance of the romulans until the events of Balance of Terror. Her origin had better be well conceived. It had better explain how her mother and father managed to get together without the knowledge of the Federation. Any number of explanations could present themselves, but I hope they do not use one that will be inconsistent from what has gone before.
0: I hope the rumor about another old flame of Kirk's showing up is just a rumor. To me, an illegitimate child does not fit the character of James T. Kirk. If their intention is to introduce a younger Kirk to carry on the tradition, he has three nephews that may wish to follow in their famous uncle's footsteps. This would be simpler than introducing a character from out of left field. The connection with the television series is reinforced.
1: So what do you think about this guy's comments? He's kind of frustrated right at the get-go, and not over the death of Spock. This is one of the few letters that does not comment on Spock dying.
0: He has some good points though, I mean, I mean, and mm-hmm. he's right. Yeah. Um,
1: Especially about Savick.
0: Yeah, about the, the Romulans and Vulcans didn't know about each other. Um, I, and it has been explained in the novels, I mean, that.
1: In comic books, multiple yes. forms of media over the years have, have addressed it.
0: Um, they said that it, it was, you know, something, something that, um, that was kept hidden. And, and it has been stated, you know, in, in novels that, um, that, that, the Vulcans higher up actually did know about the Romulans. They just kept it from everyone because of the controversy.
1: And this is something that would be brushed aside once we get to Star Trek 3.
0: Right. But, well, they never even said in Star Trek 2 that, that Savak was half Romulan.
1: Just in the script.
0: Right, right. Just in the script. And so, yeah, and then when they made Star Trek 3, they made her a full Vulcan. So it's, you know, almost a non-issue now. But in, in the novels, they still kept her half Vulcan, half Romulan.
1: That's right. The issue that he addresses about Kirk having an illegitimate son, again, the rumor mill is flying. This is pre-internet, and people are already getting little bits of information from the script.
0: And, um, I like what, what I, I know I read something somewhere else. Someone said that, um, yeah, you know, in the 23rd century, they should have reliable birth control, <laughs> which means, yeah, Kirk wouldn't have an illegitimate son. That's another case, um. So yeah that that is a good idea too and 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 I like that this person thinks that uh that Kirk would just wouldn't wouldn't do that. I mean I mean some people do have more respect for Kirk as far as how he treated women. I mean if you notice he he was always respectful even if it looked like, you know, maybe he fell in love too often or something, but he really uh he he was respectful to women. And so it, so you, if if you really look closely, you would say it it doesn't seem likely he would really have a son he didn't know about. But but of course Carol Marcus was a, a decent woman too.
1: Hid- but she kept it hidden. From yeah, that's him. what
0: we're supposed to think. Yeah, yeah, that's what it looked like. Yeah. She kept it hidden from him. It's not like he was a deadbeat dad and just ignored his son.
1: Correct. And the Marvel comic series of the nineteen nineties explained that further about her wanting to keep her privacy and distance and raising David as her own.
0: Yeah, and that that was also in the novels too. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, in the novels, it it said that Carol, when she found out she was pregnant, Kirk was, you know, up and coming in Starfleet, and he had a big career ahead of him, and she didn't want to ruin that for him. That's another reason she didn't tell him.
1: Log Entries Latest news in the worlds of science fiction and fact Wanted Trek fans for active duty
0: While Star Trek fandom eagerly awaits the June 4th release of The Uncharted Continent, Both new and established clubs are gearing up for a fresh crop of members.
1: This is primarily an article promoting what we now call Starfleet International, but at the time it was just called Starfleet, and how Starfleet was building this massive international campaign by producing a series of brochures saying, Hey, we have a fan club too. And the article goes on to say that Star Trek didn't have an official fan club like Star Wars had. And when you look back at it, it's so true. Because George Lucas was very involved in making sure that there was official fandom. But even to this day, there's no really official Star Trek fan club. The powers that be just don't want it to happen.
0: It seems like, wasn't there an official one that was a magazine? That The, the magazine was a... called the official...
1: It's funny, yeah, they had something called the official fan club, but it wasn't anything, it was like you got a card and you got a magazine. And yes. I remember that in the 80s. Uh, they didn't have, there's nothing like, there's no like Star Trek counterpart to the 501st or the Rebel Legion.
0: Yeah, there's but nothing it's like, like that, that yeah, yeah. that's official, that, that, that's a club where, where people get together in person.
1: Exactly. It's interesting to note though that Starfleet wanted to build up the fandom on a high level. The quote is, unlike Star Wars and other fandoms, Star Trek really never had an official organization. So I have to back up, not fan club, organization, where you do meetups and things. As we grow in stature, we hope to get Paramount's attention and consideration for our quests. We strongly believe that fans should join their resources into a voice that is large enough to be heard as well as to be appreciated.
0: So that is neat that, that they... um had something about them in Starlog, so this is a club where you can get together.
1: To celebrate the new film, Starfleet has revised all of its materials, including their membership handbook. Susan Sackett has been a lot of help in this area and will be a co signer on our new membership certificates. She is also writing a letter of introduction for our new handbook on behalf of herself and Jean Roddenberry. New memberships cost $7 and include the handbook, membership certificate, bumper sticker, Starfleet memo pad, and a year subscription to Starfleet Communique, the club's bi-monthly newsletter. The club is divided into chapter system with regional and local groups in which members may participate. So at the time, the president of Starfleet International was Eric A. Stillwell, who had the title of commanding he, He's still
0: around today, yeah.
1: Amazing. I've never met him before at all the different meetups we've gone to Starfleet International.
0: No, I haven't met him, but I'm saying yeah. he's still he, his, his name is still, still listed there. Yeah.
1: yeah. This chapter system gives members the option of going to meetings, working on projects, or being involved in a multitude of other possible activities. So, Starfleet International. We highly recommend it. It's fun because we like to do social things. We like to meet other Star Trek fans, especially when we travel. When we were in Paris last year, we got to meet up with another member of Starfleet International. That's the best thing about being part of an international organization—you
0: get to meet fans from all over, and and we meet other uh, members of Starfleet International when we go to, to to cons and other things. You know, out of state cons, if, anywhere, they, there are always people there. That some of them have fan tables at cons. It's really neat to meet them. <laughs> Hello, this is Admiral Kimberly Donahoe of Starfleet International, the largest Star Trek fan club in the world. I invite you to join this amazing organization to make friends, have fun, and to give back to our communities. In the meantime, stay tuned to Star Pod Trek, the podcast that explores Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future.
5: Okay, hello again, Starlog cats and kittens, my favorite people in the world. This is Burt Bruce, David Gerald, uh, the uh, article soaring. But David Gerald was born into a Jewish family, and his real name is Gerald David Friedman. He was born in January of 1944, January 24th to be uh, precise. He's well noted as a novelist, and he wrote the script for the original Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. And he created the Stack Race for the TV series Land and Lost. And he wrote the novelette The Martian Child, which won both the Hugo and Nebula Award and was adapted into a 2007 film starring John Cusack. Now, a little bit of backstory here. Uh, and I may be heretical here to say this, but I'm going to say it because I'm pretty sure I read an article and I can't find the source now. But when Roddenberry needed to do The uh, Next Generation, they approached him and said, look, we'll syndicate Star Trek The Next Generation. You won't have to worry about networks. You won't have to worry about censors. Well, the first season, he gathered up David Gerald, who wrote anonymously the Bible for the show and created the characters. I'm sure that he did this with Roddenberry, and I'm sure that Roddenberry had a big hand in it, but Gerald was mostly responsible for the show's Bible and probably served as. uh, the dictation guy for along with Susan Sackett for the series Star Trek The Next Generation. So all the characters probably owe a huge debt to David Gerald, but he left the series after the first season, you know, due to creative differences. And I hate to admit it, but the show got better in the second season. So that's might be heresy, but that's what I've heard and I believe it. David Gerald's not talking. David Gerald, if you're listening to this and you want to reach out and confirm, I'm here, buddy. I'll send you my phone number via text. Yeah yeah David Gerald's listening to this, but anyway, I love David Gerald very controversial, very provocative, just one of the best uh when when you'd read his articles when they were on a tear, there was nobody could touch him so this article in soaring deals with first off, he starts with the Disney films and he talks about the very good movie um Snow White and as you know, he said he loved going to the Disney films and um uh, he and some friends went and saw, you know, a Disney film, but but he related back to Bambi. He said in the first, you know, first few Disney films, they were very authentic, and uh, Bambi's mom dies off screen. And it's it terrifies you as a kid because, you know, you your mother is your first, uh, you know, she's your protector oftentimes, unless you had my mom. But anyway, uh, she dies off screen, and that sets the tone for the film that we're going into, you know, that it might be a children's movie, but it's going to deal with adult themes. Later on, he talks about Lady and the Tramp, and uh, they uh, two of the dogs go to rescue uh, Tramp as he's uh, taken off the street because it's uh, misperceived that he tried to bite a lady. So one of the dogs, off screen, it looks like he's been run over and killed, and his death means something. Later on, we find that same dog comes back, and he's got a a bandaged paw he did not in fact die well this made uh, david gerald mad because it was like the the believability was taken away because you thought oh this dog died and sacrificed his life to help save the tramp and it didn't happen after all and that happened later we call it the Disneyification of uh these uh, cartoon worlds where they take a real life scenario Like another good example, Dumbo's mother's in a cage and she can only caress the baby Dumbo with her trunk through the cage bars, but uh, they've uh, put her away. And so again, Dumbo's mother's taken from him. Now, these are very good points and these are very uh, uh, adult themes that, you know, even today we still talk about that uh, in our new woke woke culture that no one can be offended. No one can deal with the harsh realities of life and no one needs to be picked on and so on and so forth. And life just doesn't work that way, does it, folks? Anyway, what his real theme is, is Star Trek two. He's furious. The movie had not yet come out. There were only rumor, rumors and innuendo. The movie at this time, they were uncertain what was going to happen, but the big scuttlebutt was that Spock was going to die, and he was furious. He says, here we have invested all this time and attention to a character, and they're going to take him away, and his death is not going to mean anything. Well, of course, he was operating from rumors. He didn't know exactly what the script was. He didn't have access to it. And I think uh, Leonard Nimoy came out later on and chastised the uh, Starlog readers for believing rumors that were unsubstantiated. And uh, again, David Gerald was guilty of the, uh, the crime of uh, accusing someone falsely before the actual facts came out. Of course, we know that Spock surrenders his life so that uh, so the crew of the Enterprise can live and that Khan is the main villain, and, of course, that uh, the, the death was sacrificial so that he could save the rest of his crewmates because the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. And it was a death that meant something. And I was there in 1982 in the audience in Valparaiso, Indiana, and you could hear a pin drop. And I saw the movie several times. And every time in 1982 when Spock surrenders his life and puts the mains back online. Everyone is, you know, people are weeping. And I'm talking packed houses. I am talking Star Trek 2 was a packed house every time. We Indiana folks loved us some Star Trek. And people were weeping. You could hear sniffles and everything else. But every time that scene came, when uh, Kirk uh, exits and, you know, enters the engineering uh, room, it's pin drop silent. And for the next, you know, until the end of the movie, really, people are just stunned because you can't kill Spock. How can you do it? Now, I will say this. I did feel that his death was kind of... It was taken away from Star Trek III. And I like the film very much. I'm, I'm a big advocate for Star Trek III. And I certain parts of it I love. Uh, the death of uh, Kirk's son. That was well done. I like the second girl who played Savik. I'm not a big Christopher Lloyd fan, but he plays a good Klingon. I've, I, don't, I don't have any misgivings about him uh Nimoy did a fine job directing it uh McCoy uh D- DeForest uh, Kelly was on fire that may have been his finest uh moment in Star Trek he, he did a really good job Kirk of course was great they gave everybody in Star Trek 3 something to do from Chekhov to Sulu they, they tried to make sure that each person you know of the Star Trek uh, crew had something to do and so I thought it was a great film But to bring Spock to life the way they did, I felt was a cheat. Could have used time travel. They could have. There were. If I were going to bring Spock back to the series, I would have done it a different way, and it probably would have been involved time travel. To say that the Genesis Genesis wave rejuvenated him to the exact same age he was when he died was. uh, It was pushing it. Not that I hate that they did it that way. I mean, you had to bring Spock back, of course, and. You know, of course, we had several other good films afterwards, and Spock was uh, missed and was well used. But if you're going to kill somebody, and it's a meaningful death, it kind of it's a cheat to bring him back in the next movie. Uh, Spock's not Lazarus. Anyway, David Gerald, great writer, and uh, just a little bit. Uh, again, we mentioned that he was born in 1944, so he's uh, it's about my mother's age. He. Uh, had a series of novels, and he won Nebulas and Yugos. He attended Van Nuys High School and graduated from Ulysses S. Grant High School in its first graduating class and went to Los Angeles Valley College and San Fernando Valley State College, now called the California State University Northridge. And, of course, you know him from writing uh, The uh, Trouble with Tribbles, and they said that he had a lot of help from Gene Kuhn and so on. But he was a very young writer, and they did use him. He was also involved with the Star Trek, the animated series. He contributed two stories to that Emmy Award-winning Star Trek, the animated series, and that ran from seventy-three to 1974. More Tribbles, More Troubles, and BEM. Now, BEM featured the first use of James T. Kirk's middle name, which was revealed to be Tiberius.
1: okay even though we are at the cusp of getting a new Star Trek movie they keep calling it Star Trek 2 though in the print media they haven't decided on the name a final name which we know as the Wrath of Khan even in this article of Starlog they call it
0: something like undiscovered country but because which, that was what you know, uh, Nicholas Meyer wanted to call it at first
1: yeah it, it it's just amazing that they don't even have a solid name but We know that there wasn't a lot of merchandise. For the Star Trek 2 movie. Because the merchandise. The the motion picture didn't sell as well. That's why. This is so incredible. You just have to shake your head. And say why. Why did this happen. This is. This came out in 1982. Believe it or not. Star Trek the motion picture video game. For the Vectrex system. Now. I had Vectrex, my grandfather got guy for me, for my birthday, and I loved it. It was something that did not sell very well. It was the time period when there were way too many video games, way too many video game systems. It's not like it is now, where there's two big boys that everyone has the choice of. Now, At this time, there were a half a dozen or more, and parents are just they're saying enough of it. But I saw that there was a Star Trek video game that was vector-based, I had to have it. Vectrex was not a system that you plug into your TV, but instead it was a vertical monitor that had a flip-out controller. That was so unbelievable for its time period. So the system, actually, because of it being vertical, it felt like you had a mini arcade in your house. Well, that must have been neat. And what was amazing about it, was the fact that it was totally vector-based. So, not pixels on a screen like you would have with Atari or Intellivision.
0: Kind of like asteroids.
1: Exactly. It was a series of line drawings. This was perfect for Star Trek. It worked better with space-age and space-themed games. You actually piloted the Enterprise, and you went around fighting Klingons. That's all it was. You'd go through these warps to go into different sectors... And you had a series of Klingons that you had to beat. But to think that the marketing department just didn't... Merchandising and marketing during this time period outside of of George Lucas really didn't promote things that were coming up. They were celebrating things that were behind. So to imagine having a Star Trek The Motion Picture video game released in 1982, it's just one of those strange things in Star Trek history.
5: W P I X New York.
1: That's on Channel Eleven,
3: Star Trek.
1: One thing that's interesting to note is when we look at The Wrath of Khan now, it's an epic movie. It's always rated one of the tops when it comes to fan favorites. When it comes to polls of one of the most greatest arch-nemesis or adversaries in the Star Trek universe Khan's name comes up but was that the case in
0: 1966 Khan was i mean you know like no one really said Space Seed was their favorite episode in the 70s
1: and so we have to think about that when we review Space Seed when we watch it again now we look at that as one of the must-see episodes but at that time Every piece of information we look at, it wasn't rated as high. It wasn't as awesome.
0: I mean, no one really disliked it, but but it just wasn't a favorite.
1: But now it's considered a must-watch. If you were to tell somebody to watch five episodes of Star Trek, the original series, oftentimes that comes up as an episode that you have to see. So we are going to look at it through a unique lens as a group. When we rewatch together Space Seed in preparation... For our rewatch and celebration of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. All right, so we're here with a group of friends talking about Space Seed. Amazing first season episode of Star Trek, the original series, the one that introduced Khan Noonien, Singh to us. So, anyone have any fond memories of when they first saw it? What it was like?
0: This is Kavora. I'm not sure when was the first time I saw it, but I just remember thinking it, it was an interesting episode. I, I mean, Ricardo Montalban, everybody loves him. And of course, I was a big fan of Fantasy Island, too. <laughs> so, but, um, now, now, now the relationship with MacGyver's, it, it still seems strange. Like, why would Khan really be interested in her? And even watching that, it still seemed a little like that was probably part of the, a weak point of the episode, but at least she, but, she, she was willing to help, and at least she did know how to, like, to save Kirk and and still say that she was on Khan's side. I mean, she kind of saved herself in that way. And it's hard to believe that she would have chosen to go with him. I mean, like, she fell in love with him just in the course of this episode. Um, Other things, like, and of course we know from Math of Khan, you know, everyone says, well, Chekhov, you know, he remembers Chekhov, but Chekhov wasn't in this episode. While we were watching this, I think it would be neat if someone could do a remake of the episode and just add in, like, just one second, just showing (laughs) Chekhov somewhere on the Enterprise.
1: Yeah, I was like you. I was familiar with Fantasy Island before I saw this episode, so I always viewed Ricardo Montalban as as,
0: uh, Mr.
1: Mr. Rourke and also Rich Corinthian Leather. I mean, those commercials were on
2: for years yeah i'm phil barnes i'm a little older than the rest of the group so i knew Khan before i knew uh, mr rourke <laughs> smiles everyone smiles yes. yeah particularly you know watching it later i, I always wonder if if uh you know con messing with her hair and whatnot is was just a way to find out if she was malleable enough for him to manipulate
1: yes yes definitely.
2: and uh yeah this has always been one of my favorite episodes uh I was not quite old enough to watch it first run, but I was definitely a syndication kid and saw the saw the uh, animated series
1: first run. I, that was that was one of the great episodes. Yeah, this is a type of episode that it, it does. It, it's funny the name of it's called Space Seed, and throughout the whole episode, you're like, "Well, there's no seeds in this. Why is it called Space Seed?" It's not until the last minute. Does it reveal? Well, he's going to be the seed on another planet, in the city Alpha system, and it was actually hopeful. It ended on okay. This guy's a bad dude, but sometimes when you think about it, too, Australia was a penal colony. the The whole island was for it for England, um, continent we should say. But it's so there was hope for Khan that he could start a new life. And so he would, would, would see this new life. Interesting that Harv Bennett, when reviewing episodes to make, whether it be a telemovie or a motion picture, thought that this episode had an ending that had the most hope of extending on of, of, as, as, as a sequel to it, mm-hmm. which is really interesting to think that because obviously this was not designed to have a sequel. Other Star Trek episodes were designed to have a sequel. Like um, David Gerald said, he wanted to continue on with Tribbles. That's why the animated series episode came on. There were, there were certain ones that – you know Mud came back again. This wasn't designed so much that we would ever find out about Khan, but who would figure that this would be the face, the major face of adversaries in the whole Star Trek universe?
3: Oh, I, I don't know. Um, of course I was a fan of Wrath of Khan. I would see it on – on video several times and for the longest time i was i grew up in the 90s and we didn't have video of the original series we would just catch it on reruns so it was years before i would see space seed when i would like rent the dvds and so it was of course great to see ricardo a little bit younger
1: still being his uh over the top uh self uh, so that was fun i love how intense he is yeah yeah <laughs> And and when you count it, you realize what a good actor he is because he could play so many different roles. And when he went back to portraying Khan again in The Wrath of Khan, he brought back that intensity. He, like he, he really knew how to get back into character. And, and to go back to your point about Chekhov not being on the Enterprise at the time, even Walter Koenig addresses it when he goes to conventions. And it's – the The established fan theory is, yes, he was on the enterprise, but he was on a different shift, which totally makes sense and when Khan was reviewing the files, he would have seen everyone in personnel or he,
2: maybe he was a junior
1: crewman, and exactly. oh Khan saw him off screen, you know, yeah something like that, yeah, love the fact that Khan had five different outfits in this episode, oh I mean. That's one of the things that I love about the original series is the texture, the color, the feel. Every one of these outfits had a unique look to it. Probably my favorite is the gold one.
0: Yeah, yeah the gold one, uh, the the suit that he wore to to the uh, the dinner. That that was a great look for him. It was. It's. Um, yeah, that was a wonderful make. And of course, what he wore at the beginning, the the body stocking was good too. A a giant
1: fishnet? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and and the fact that Ricardo Montalban, and of course he had a, you know, great body in this episode. And the thing is, when he comes, when he came back in Wrath of Khan, it was the same body, you know, he Mm -hmm. still looked great. And, um, and I, and I do have to mention there's um, a series of books um, about the about Khan, um Amazing. greg yeah greg Cox wrote to reign in hell and the eugenics wars that covered um what happened on earth during the time of of the eugenics wars and when khan took over and and it explains how all of this happened and and he tried to make it the way it could have happened in the real world, even though it didn't happen. But he tried to go back and explain, well, well, it did. We just didn't know about it. And then later on, the books that explained what happened on, on City Alpha 5 and everything. It's a great read.
1: And in talking about the eugenics wars, this is something that has been brought up over and over again in multiple Star Trek series. So this episode not only establishes Khan as a formidable adversary to Kirk, but also the idea of this war that went on Earth in the 1990s, that humanity overcame and actually made us better.
2: Well, it's kind of one of the things that, you know, it's like everybody's like, oh, I guess they missed that mark. And it's like, well, you know, it's back in the 1960s, you know, and even in the, the 1950s, we, we thought we were going to be a lot more advanced than we are, mm-hmm. and... and uh, I was looking forward to 2000 when we were going to have flying cars, yeah. <laughs> and they, uh, they actually had a Time magazine cover with Rosie the Robot on it that uh-huh. says, "Who stole our future?" <laughs> and my my working theory on that is is uh, personal computers that all of a sudden you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to be a computer programmer and yeah. something like this, You know, we they we kind of lost focus on outer space and went to what you might call inner interspace. Yeah. Um, one of the, the things that you, know, you brought up was the checkoff factor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like you know, Scott Nance's theory of uh, that if you go by the star dates and put them in that kind of chronological order, then Cat Spa actually
1: happened before <laughs> Space Seed. Oh,
2: okay.
1: yeah. Yeah. So impressed with this episode that it also had some details. We got to see Petty, uh, Eddie Pesky in the background. Got to see also Scotty in his dress uniform without his tartan, and that was curious. So that's another alternative uh, that we see of the dress uniform that he wears. Yeah, only four people wore the dress uniform for the dinner. I thought that was kind of interesting, even that they were getting in dress uniform for it. Like it was, it was an oddity of sorts.
0: Well, they explained right. They explained the dress uniforms that MacGyvers wanted them to do that. So, but
1: only four of them were wearing dress uniforms. Not everyone oh, right,
0: was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So not everybody was. Like, it's like they didn't want to make it for everyone else. That the thing we've talked about is that like the women don't seem to have the a dress uniform, except maybe. It's it, not yeah. So noticeable. Yeah. It's, it's not machine. as it's not as different. It's just it's the same thing. It's the same design. Only only it's the shiny material. Yeah. Instead of wearing their medals with them. Like to imply that they don't get medals or something. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's, that's one of those things that was for budgetary reasons. They didn't really do anything with it, which if there was a fourth or a fifth season, I'm sure they would. This episode, now the version we watched was the Roddenberry Vault version. It included a scene that it's a blink and you missed it, and unless you researched it, you wouldn't notice it. It was a friend of Marlena MacGyver's was in a scene. And that's it. It had nothing to do to enhance the story. It's just one of those things that, as a completist, you have to have everything they made. So they kind of make you buy the, the Roddenberry Vault discs just to see that. And we also watched the enhanced version with the Botany Bay looking super awesome. What everybody think about the enhanced version of the Botany Bay?
2: Yeah, I thought it was really good, and especially I liked uh, when they discarded the ship, how it spun off. Yes. Yeah, and it, yes. it wasn't just, you know, this stagnant thing sitting there and, and you know, moving off on the stand like it did on the original. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think I picked up on that uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'd have to go back and rewatch it again, but <clears throat> I'm thinking that the security guard outside cons off, uh, mm-hmm. uh quarters, was a different guy when Kirk walked in and out of the room versus the guy that was standing out in the hall. I think I think yeah. they had a different guy there.
1: <laughs> speaking of different guy, I mean, that uh, stunt double for Kirk. Because oh, we're, yeah. wa- we're watching on a 70-inch screen in Blu-ray, and it was so obvious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the like, thing. It's like, you know, we used to watch it on a... 13 to 19-inch, you know. On a small screen, you don't notice it, yeah.
0: Low res. Was there a time when they showed the stunt double's face? Yes. That, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, it was. It was really yeah, bad.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, but but as far as uh, Matt Jeffery's design for the Botany Bay, he designed that before he designed the Enterprise. Oh. And that was one of the things that he said, I want to hold on to it. We'll need a ship down the road. Mm. And that, so that's curious that that was one of his back pocket ideas of working that ship in. It wasn't designed specifically for Khan. Mm-hmm. It, it was just a fill-in ship. But we've seen it in multiple formats because they have the the micro-machines, mm-hmm. Botany Bay, they make the oh, Eagle Moss yeah. made one. Yeah, so I mean, there's so many elements of this episode that over time have become iconic. I mean, the number one being Khan. And if you were to tell me that out of all the Star Trek episodes, this would be a major character forty years later, like the major character. I I said like, well, how could that be? But the Wrath of Khan made that happen, and it's
0: yeah, I think. But before Wrath of Khan, you know, there there were polls about your favorite episode. I'm, like, not many people named Space Seed as their favorite. That's the right. point I'm
1: making. But this, then after yeah, not, but yeah.
0: then after Wrath of Khan, a lot yes. of people said it was their favorite. Yeah.
1: This always comes up as a top ten must-see episode of Star Trek for new people, for obvious reasons. Yeah, then there's also,
2: you know, the fact that it not only branched off the second movie, but then it also became uh, like a two-parter in Enterprise yes. with the augments. Yeah, you're right, you're right. And then now with Strange New Worlds, they had the one crew member as a descendant of Khan. That's right,
1: that's right. And the JJ timeline yeah. is a remake of. A, yeah, we don't want to talk about that. Is a remake of Space Seat. so it's
0: just amazing. Yes, and in Picard season two, they mentioned it, the Augments too. They're That's trying right. to do that. Trying to say they're related to whoever um, Brent Spiner's same character in Enterprise. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I about
1: that. Yeah. So I mean, looking at these roots helps us to appreciate really the entire Star Trek universe even more clearly. It all began here. As always, we close out this episode by looking at one of the advertisements found in Starlog Magazine. This one is on the back page. This had to be one of the most epic conventions ever announced. It's a full-page ad. Now, we didn't see full-page ads advertising conventions. So we know that the convention promoters were expecting something monumental to spend this kind of money on an ad. Join the crew of the Enterprise in The The Ultimate ultimate fantasy. Fantasy. Houston, Texas, June 19th through 20th, 1982.
0: And the guests of Appearing Live on Stage, William Shatner, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, Walter Koenig, Nichelle Nichols, George Takei, Kirstie Alley, Mark Leonard, with Harv Bennett and Kerry Quinn,
1: Featuring a special effects light show.
0: Yeah, that looks like a pretty cool convention.
1: <laughs> for more information, call 1-800-231-2684. Tickets, $30 each. Limited stage floor seating, $75 each. Tickets available at all Ticketron and Summit Box office.
0: So they had all the big ones except for Leonard Nimoy. And, and seeing Kirstie Alley would have been so cool. She really does, Kahn's.
1: Now just think about that. They were building this up so it would come out shortly after Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. They wanted this to be a celebration of Wrath of Khan. It just wasn't an original series reunion. You could tell they were gearing it up by adding Kirstie Alley and Harve Bennett. Yes. Carrie O'Quinn was a special guest.
0: Uh, from Starlog Magazine.
1: Again, this just shows the power of Starlog at that time to have the publisher there on the same bill as everyone else.
0: And, and I would have loved to have seen Kerio Quinn too. I mean, you know, because I was such a big Starlog fan back then. Um, and, and Mark Leonard, who was not in Star Trek too, but he w- yeah, it would have been great to see him. So yeah, that, that was a really good lineup. I mean, and all of those stars from the original series.
1: It's interesting that this is not just a run-of-the-mill fan convention that was popular during that time period to the point where tickets in modern day, your entry-level seats would be $90, and in modern day's currency, it would be roughly $200. The $30 there. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and
1: and the limited stage floor seats, so the VIP seats would be roughly $200. And here's the interesting point. Tickets available at all Ticketron and Summit box office. They they were expecting massive crowds in order to team up with Ticketron because that's what that's when you went to a concert that's you 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 didn't have somebody sitting at a folding card table collecting money. They were expecting this to be the biggest of all conventions. That's why they call it the ultimate fantasy.
0: Yeah, and for thirty dollars. that, that's unreal. I, mean, I At that I used time, to, yeah. Well, I mean, even like, because in the 90s, I paid $30 for weekend cons in Atlanta that, that's that had the big point. guests. That's
1: the point. Know. That's the point. Yeah, I mean, this thing was expensive. This is at a time period where it's now people are used to spending this kind of money. At that time, people spend a lot of money now because they have credit cards. There's a mentality of I'll enjoy it now. I'll pay for it later. Back then, you had to have the money cash on hand. No parent was going to let their kid go to something like this unless you had the money for it. I'm telling you what, my, if it was around my area, there's no way I would have gone because my parents couldn't afford something like that.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, so it had to be people who could afford it or people who were willing to go. A lot, a lot of parents took their kids, the ones who, who liked Star Trek.
1: We're going to find out more about this for those who don't know, uh, this, was a very interesting piece, this convention in Star Trek fan history. We're going to talk about it. We're going to do some deep dives into it. But to see that this is the early advertisement for it, and we're looking at this, it is quite possibly the perfect con. But we're looking at pieces of it now and saying this might be a recipe for disaster.
0: Thanks for listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us positive feedback on your podcast app. Your five-star reviews are always welcome. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. All I have to do is push this little red button.